Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, you'll be listening to PSY 304 Elementary Statistics with Professor Mark Hunter. I hope you listen and enjoy. Five, we're going to discuss what it is thinking, what is it involved, and terms that you'll use in here are cognition and about the mental activities that we take place in our brain, a concept, things that are similar, objects, events, uh, and a prototype. You know, what's a mental image of the best example of something? Um, we talk about trial and errors and uh, problem-solving strategies. You know, you, do you, uh, uh, you know, the cat in the box with the Skinner box is, you know, the cat tried a variety of different things to get out, and it finally figured out by hitting a lever it could leave. An algorithm, you may hear that sometimes in the news, meaning, you know, websites have algorithms. That's a logical rule, mathematical formula, or something that guarantees a certain um, answer to a problem. Um, but not all problems have one certain final answer. Sometimes it's, uh, we have to make judgments, and so we use heuristics, where it's uh, thinking strategies. Um, things that really interfere with problem solving is confirmation bias. And by that it means that we tend to search for information that supports our preconceived notion. Um, you see this happening by people have a political, political um, affiliation and they only watch news channels or look at websites that reconfirm what they already believe. And so you just try to search for evidence that, that um, supports your belief. Um, a fixation is that you can't look at something from a new perspective, meaning that you're kind of stuck in one spot and you can't move and see it from a new perspective. Um, the uh, a mental set is a tendency to approach problems with a mindset that has worked previously. You know, you, you said, I, in this situation I use this way to go about it. I wonder if it'll work in this situation. Um, the um, fear has a lot to do with the impact on our thinking. Um, things that you know we've been taught to fear, things that we feel like we can't control, um, you know, things that uh, and that interferes with thinking as well. Overconfidence. We think we already know it, and we don't need to learn anymore, and so we overestimate our ability to uh, perform well, and. Um, I work with college students, and every student who's ever failed a class has always said, well, I thought I did well on the test. And um, so we have this um, tendency to think that we did better than that, what we actually uh, did. So um, we sometimes have this uh, perseverance of belief, this um, this tendency to uh, cling to beliefs even when contradictory evidence comes in because we're afraid of giving up that our identity or that who we are or what we tend to believe in. Um, framing is an approach where we start to look at something and we present it in a different way. It's the same issue but maybe we've, like a picture frame, we've surrounded it by something a different way to envision it. Um, Sometimes we have thinking involves smart intuition. And intuition is really um, something that we have quick reactions. We, our experience has shown us 
this is the way to go. And uh, a lot of what we do in our lives, some of the decisions we make, is um, you know based off our intuition. We don't have you know all the data, but we just our experience has shown us that this is probably the best way to drive through this city or you know manipulate through this uh, environment or something. And so that's a way. Um, smart thinkers are deliberate and aware of intuitive options, but also know when to override it, meaning like the little boy here who maybe is raising his hand just too early. And um, sometimes kids will raise their hand, they want to give an answer, but it's really they want to just be giving an answer rather than the smart answer. And sometimes the ability to, before you raise your hand, to think, is this actually the way to go in this? Is this the correct answer? Is uh, an aspect of proper thinking. Creativity. It's not just um, thinking of how to solve math problems or, or things like that, but it's new and valuable ideas. Being able to take information and approach it from a different perspective, come up with new solutions to old problems. Um, convergent thinking is when you bring um, different solutions together where you, you have a variety, a variety of options and you converge them and maybe some different ideas that people have in a, in a group or something and you're uh, bringing them, you come up to one best answer. Divergent thinking is expanding the number of possible solutions. Instead of we've always done it this way, is well, what's another possible way to do it? And so that's uh, an example of the differences of that. Now, an abstract uh, area we can discuss in module 26 is language and thought. And language is such a an integral part. That's what I'm sharing with you now that we tend not to really think of the importance it plays even in psychology. But just the fact that you're hearing me uh, say these words that I've formed and have presented to you and you're receiving them and then you're, um, you're taking them in and you're understanding what I'm saying is a huge psychological development. And um, this slide just talks about the different structures of language and there's areas of psychology that even go deeper in each of these areas. But um, how do we learn language? Different theorists have different ideas. Uh, <coughs> Noam Chomsky has had this idea that we have this um, language acquisition device, that we're born with this uh, universal grammar, that all is uh, available and that uh, we can, every human has the ability to understand. Um, Others have had a different idea that languages are more diverse than the universal grammar system. If you've ever studied languages in maybe in high school or, or elsewhere, you realize that maybe the verb comes in different locations or, or subject comes in different locations. And, and not all languages are the, are the same and approach it the same way. So um, when we're learning a new language, receptive language is the first part. And this is what a child does. It's hearing its mother, its father talk to it. It can't produce the words back, but it's starting to understand what it's heard. So if you've ever uh, say that you're in an area and you uh, hear another language spoken, 
you, at first, the process of learning a new language is that you're able to receive the information and understand it. You can't produce a sentence yourself, but you understood the sentence or word that someone else said. Um, and so, as a child, they're associating both the language and the face of the mom together. Our productive language, uh, especially with children, starts at different stages. One is just babbling, and they're making, they're just learning how to form their lips and their tongue together to make sounds. And then there's the one-word stage where they're just saying things like mama or dada. Then a two-word stage where they uh, say like uh, um, mama play or, or daddy play, where they're having a subject and a verb. And then telegraphic is where they may be providing a little bit more, you know, a few more words, but not a complete sentences, but you're getting the idea of what they're trying to convey. Um, and this slide tells you the different stages that these things occur. And so, um, you know, a one-year-old is usually about at the one-word stage where they're just saying kitty or mama or daddy or things. And so, again, these are guidelines. If you have a child and they're either early or later than this, don't be too upset or worried about it. It's going to... Um, you know, it, it most likely will occur it's just that children's talk at different rates. These are just the averages for that development. There are critical areas when language development needs to happen and they form a sequence. So, um, so as it says here, the ability to master any language is lost around age seven if exposure to spoken or sign language does not occur. So if a child has not heard a language, or seen sign language before age of seven, our brain has really does not allow us to learn a language after that. So one of the most important things that you can do with a child at all stages of life is language, sharing a story, even though the child doesn't understand the story that you're reading, uh, to read a book to them and to point out, and they're slowly making those associations. All that is help, helpful in forming their brain and the development of the language. Um, sometimes we have interference with this ability uh, as uh, adults have the ability to speak words is affected in the Broca's area, and that's actually to produce the words. But hearing the words is being affected in Wernicke's area. And so these are different types that we have that, inter, you know, both in children and adults, but if that ability is lost later on, it's usually because of that. Um, we, you know, some psychologists think that language has influence on the way we think, that our words are our thoughts, you know, that we're sharing in either verbally or written out. And that expresses in the way that we've learned language has affected the way we think. There's, um, and now the uh, idea of what is intelligence and how, is, how do we understand what intelligence is. And a definition that we're going to use is ability to learn from experience, solve problems, and use knowledge to adapt to new situations. Um, there's different definitions for intelligence, theories towards intelligence. One is the Spearman's general intelligence theory, which underlines all uh, mental abilities and therefore measured at every task, an intelligence task. Think of it this way, that it's sort of like the intelligence that you use in school. 
you uh, have you know the ability for writing, speaking, math problems, logic, things like that. This generalized ability to do that. Um, some psychologists developed other theories. Uh, you may have heard of Gardner's multiple intelligence that we have uh, that's not just this educational based kind of intelligence theory, but it's also you know musical intelligence or great athletes have kinesthetic intelligence. They know how to to act on you know, the basketball court, or, and so um, sometimes you have uh, what we call savants who have extreme amount of intelligence in one area, but maybe lacking in other areas as well. Um, another psychologist, Sternberg, had a theory that says there's uh, analytical or academic uh, problem-solving intelligence, one is creative intelligence, and one is practical intelligence. The idea, can you kind of get through life okay? Uh, maybe uh, the idea of being book smart versus street smart versus being creative. And so, um, and sometimes people have all three and sometimes they just have one and not the others. So uh, this goes back to the different types of intelligence that uh, Gardner had and you can see uh, linguistic or naturalistic or interpersonal or interpersonal and so on. So, you know, um, a lot of times people are, this has found favor, but not all psychologists find this is the correct explanation. Another area of intelligence is starting to gain some popularity is emotional intelligence. And this has to do with our understanding of how to deal with society. How do we perceive the emotions of others? How do we understand the emotions of others? How do we manage our emotions? How do we use emotions? So um, Gardner's uh, multiple intelligence would classify this in the interpersonal interactions between uh, people and intrapersonal, really understanding yourself. So um, people with uh, autism spectrum disorder often have uh, deficits in this area to pick up the emotions or understanding what's the proper social behavior in a situation. So how do we assess, uh, assess uh, intelligence? We have different tests. A lot of work goes into understanding what is involved and what actually is an important aspect of intelligence, mental aptitudes. Sometimes achievement tests is reflect what we've already learned. Like when you take a quiz here in this class, that's an achievement test. You've, it's assessing what we've been teaching. An aptitude test is your predict your ability to learn something. Maybe you've been in a job and they've given you an aptitude test and said, do you have an aptitude to learn this type of skill? Um, so what intelligence tests were started really with the idea to predict school achievement. And um, the idea was based off this formula of your mental age of, um, and then divided by your chronological age. So the, um, you've probably seen IQ score. An average IQ score is 100, meaning that if someone that the population has, an, you know, most people have an IQ around 100. And um, then, so, and then there's people who have above and people who have below. So, but those are ways that uh, they're scored. So you can see by the diagram here that 68% of people based off of IQ, and this is normal distribution curve, 
have an IQ between 85 and uh, 115. And then anything higher or greater than that is becoming more than one standard deviation. So when, when we get um, scores that are higher than that or scores that are lower than that, then we, we have different educational opportunities for them. So um, a low intelligence, we test that before the age of 18 and to see if there's any special needs that this child has or student has anything that we can do to help. Um, anything that's considered different definitions, anything considered over 135 or 140 is considered um, a part of higher intelligence. And uh, so those are norms that are placed. And again, those are arbitrary and uh, so it's intelligence is, uh, but important to remember is based primarily on how well as a predictor of someone will do in school. Um, and intelligence usually is pretty stable after a while. So about 11 to 70, your intelligence level is pretty stable. It'll change earlier, but once you kind of get past, um, once in adolescence and adulthood, it doesn't change that much. Um, if you are considered more intelligent, why do you live longer? Well, a lot of times is maybe you made better choices and maybe you selected yourself that you had a better education which allows you being in a better environment. And those can have contributing factors to that. And um, what are some of the, the influences? We, we do have genetic influences if your parents biological parents were highly educated and intelligent, you know, it's probably going to be that uh, the child is as well. And, um, but it, it's not a guarantee, but it does have a, an, an area of predictability to it. And so um, the environment that you live in has an impact as well that'll affect. Um, and so if you're in a lower socioeconomic standard and there's not the resources available that could uh, have an impact on the intelligence and the simulation that you could have as well. So the environment has a lot to do with it. You can, you know, children that are adopted from maybe poor locations, if they're able to uh, get the nurture they need, can raise their IQ scores in their new environment. Um, epigenetics is just a study of how our nature and our nurture work together in the field of intelligence and how our environment can actually shape and mold our intelligence as well. And some, um, there are some differences between males and females in intelligence scores, but they're really minor and uh, they're not, um, you know, there are individual differences that, uh, but usually girls do better in verbal skills Boys tend to outperform girls in math, but that's just, uh, that's not a hard and fast rule. And one of the things is when you make an intelligence test, what are you actually measuring? And so everyone has to come up with some sort of idea about what an intelligence test is. So there is, you know, so making an intelligence test is important to determine, is it biased? Is there, are you asking people to know things that they couldn't possibly know? So that ends this lecture and I'll see you in the next one.